start off, I guess, kind of maybe where we left things last night when it comes to the forest fire situation in the country. Yesterday, you remember, we had a couple of conversations, if you were listening. One in particular that uh, really resonated with me was with Terry Cotwood. She was the owner of the daycare just outside of Halifax. She's owned and operated the daycare for decades. It burned to the ground on Sunday night. Sunday was the day that she and her family were evacuated. That night, the daycare burned down. She didn't find out about it for about three days later, but it happened that quickly. That same night, Sunday, the night that they were evacuated, their home was burned down. And yet here was Terry telling us last evening, she's already got a plan to rebuild not only her daycare, but to help uplift the community. And those are the sorts of stories that we really like to hear amidst such tragedy uh, that these fires have caused across the country already this year. And we're not even technically into summer. Tonight, I thought we'd take a bit of a step back, maybe take a broader view. Forest fires, forest fire seasons, which certainly seem to be getting longer, are forest fighters. And do they have the resources that they need to fight the fires? And maybe a longer term view in terms of where are we going? And is there anything we can do when it comes to forest management or mitigation to lessen the threat of these extreme threats? and extreme events in years to come. So we're pleased to welcome to the program this evening, John Davies. John is a senior wildland fire specialist with Foresight Consultants. John, welcome to the program. Yes, good evening, Seth. Thanks for having me. Uh, it has been a heck of a, uh, of a year already. I was going to say summer, but it's not technically summer yet. Uh, how would you characterize the fire season so far across the country? I, you know, I mean, I started fighting fires in, in 93 with the government and, and became a consultant in 04. And I, and I can't remember a year that started out with this many big fires so early on in the season. And I wish it wasn't so predictable. I know uh, earlier this year, uh, someone was talking about where they've, they've moved up the forest fire season. So it's starting whenever it was. And and even at that time, we were talking and saying, well, there's been, there's been very little snowpack this year. There's been almost no precipitation once the snow left. And sure enough, within weeks, people were being evacuated on the prairies. And now we see what's happening in Nova Scotia. Is it that predictable right now? Is this, is this just kind of what we're going to have to put up with from this point forward? I know weather's not always the same every year, uh, but it does seem like it's getting to a critical state. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree. You know, when I, when I first started in 93, my contract with the government went from, you know, late May to uh, middle of August. And by the time I was done in, in, in 2002, my contract was starting in early April and ending in, in September. And now you, have, now you have people that are starting their jobs in, in March and finishing in November. And, uh, you know, so, so the, the, the season is definitely long in, in that regard. Um, but the, the conditions are changing as well. You know, we're, we've been in this long-term drought um, for, for many years now, and we never seem to get to a point where the forests have an opportunity to, to rebound from that. And, and we head into a drought in the fall and have low snowpacks. And then we get to these springs where, yeah, we, we just don't have the, the snowpacks in the previous season to, to kind of uh, recharge, and we, we end up in, in very dry conditions as soon as the snow melts. So, John, take us to the front lines of these forest fighters. What what are what are the forest fighters dealing with when when they when they enter the field? Uh, well, these these are very difficult conditions uh, that that the forest firefighters are dealing with, and and even the structural firefighters when they're trying to protect homes. We have very very high temperatures for this this time of year. They're unseasonal. Uh, with that, we have we have a low relative humidity. 
which creates conditions for um, uh, very dry conditions. And then when you add winds to that to fan the fire or, or push it along in, in addition to way too much uh, forest fuels on the landscape, we basically create these conditions that are ripe for, for fire behavior that can be in the high to extreme range. And it creates a very dangerous condition uh, for firefighters uh, that one, they're having to deal with fast moving and very intense fires, but at the same time, they're having to uh, work in those, those hot and dry conditions in, in a very arduous task um, under very stressful conditions. Uh, when you're working in an interface, um, you know, you have, you have risks that, are, that differ from just being out amongst, you know, trees in the wildland. You have power lines, you have vehicles, uh, you, you have homes, you have um, who knows what under people's balconies or that they've dumped in their backyards. Um, and uh, so you, you can have some very unknown conditions. And, and when you get into these challenging, extreme conditions, you, you just never have enough resources uh, to try and to tackle that. And, and in some regards, you, you can't even be effective uh, when you get to the, those extreme fire conditions. And when we're talking about resources. Is that is that the people on the ground that are fighting the fires, uh, equipment? Uh, I'm not sure what other resources are needed. And, and we do hear uh, jurisdictions that are trying to be collaborative and the federal government gets involved, pro- provinces get involved, municipalities get involved. I'm sure there are private companies. There are other countries that are sending uh, firefighters here. It seems like it's a, a massive undertaking to coordinate everything that needs to be done to get on top of these. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of planning and logistics that go into responding to a fire. It's not just a matter of, you know, people people show up uh, with, with, with tools and water and, and put a fire out. You, you first and foremost have to make sure that uh, your, your people can work safely uh, or as safely as possible. There's always risk. And then you have to take it a strategic approach uh, to trying to uh, suppress these these fires, find areas where you can work safely and then slowly work your way around to uh, the head of the fire where the, the intensity is more extreme and, and, and try and, and try and pinch it off. Um, but yeah, the resources, they, they, they vary from, you know, just from firefighters on the ground to heavy machinery that can help you build fire guard to aircraft, whether it be helicopters or, or fixed wing that can help deliver water, uh, cool a fire down or cool an area down for the, the ground crews to safely work. And then you, you have your whole structural uh, segment where you have uh, your, your structural firefighters that are trying to protect homes either through direct attack or setting up sprinklers or, or trying to risk reduce uh, in and around homes. So, yeah, the resources are varied. Can you speak to the unpredictability that firefighters are, are, are dealing with as well? And I guess those who also maybe try and forecast where that fire is headed or, or what might slow it down, because I know there was an incident, and it might have been in Alberta earlier, probably a few weeks ago now, because the fires in Alberta started really early, I think near the end of April this year. And it, one of them was heading towards a river, and, and some people were saying, well, that will be good because the river will stop it. I've also been in areas and, and driven down a lake in a boat where – the, the the water was there, the lake was 400 meters wide, give or take. Uh, and the forest fire, I mean, it did slow down, but it jumped that lake. There was an ember and it just crossed the lake and the fire sparked up on the other side of the lake. Yeah. So, so when a fire spreads, it either, it, it spreads along the ground. So horizontally, and, and then it can spread vertically and up into the crowns of the trees, the treetops. And then from there, it will move horizontally through the crown. So from treetop to treetop. And, and so you'll have this line of fire that we typically see, uh, you know, in, in the media uh, with this big 
big smoke above it. But what, what the fires will also do is they'll, they'll send out embers uh, and, and the wind will carry those embers aloft. And, and those can land you know, hundreds of meters to, you know, two, five, in some instances, more than that, kilometers ahead of the fire. And if those embers land in something that's receptive to ignition, then you can have a spot fire start way ahead of the fire. So uh, you know, a fire could burn up to a lake, it could burn up to a road, it could burn up to a river where there's you know, no horizontal fuel for it to keep burning, but it can throw embers across those, those non-fuel entities and start other, other fires ahead of itself. So, um, yeah, it's, there, there, there's no guarantee that those, um, those features will, will stop a fire. Talking forest fires, and in a way, unfortunately, we're talking forest fires, but it's just been sort of an all-consuming story across the country already this spring and as we go into the early moments of summer. And a lot of these fires, of course, are started naturally. Some are started by things like lightning, but unfortunately, others are caused by us. They're caused by humans. Uh, Halifax Mayor Mike Savage had this to say yesterday about people throwing cigarette butts out their window. Halifax police, I saw a tweet today that they have tweeted out that people are flicking cigarette butts out of our windows. Um, you know, it would be nice in a time of crisis if we could have a no stupid policy. It would be nice if we could have a no stupid policy. We're joined on the program again by John Davies. John is a senior wildland fire specialist with Foresight Consultants. John, what goes through your mind knowing that, that so many of these fires, these forest fires, are in a way preventable? Yeah, it's, it's definitely frustrating. Uh, with regards to um, you know what the, what the mayor was saying there, uh, smoking is it's so habitual that I, I think it's just part of the whole process and second nature of people disposing of their cigarettes uh, either into the street or out their window without regard for what happens after that hits the hits the ground. Um, but there's definitely no lack of information you know on the consequences of wildfire um, or or. Uh, the consequences of wild wildlands, uh, wildfires to wild wildlands or, or, or communities, and and, and so um, that ignorance is really it is it is inexcusable. Um, it, it's it's very frustrating, uh, you know, as a firefighter on the ground to realizing that you're doing something in a very unsafe condition uh, that could have been prevented. It, it didn't happen to happen, um, you know, which is different than say fighting a fire that started with, with by lightning. Um, there are other human causes that you know may, may be less obvious to people, um, you know, like a hot exhaust pipe on an ATV or a four by four vehicle that you park in, in, in tall grass. Uh, but but you know these these readily preventable or ones that should be known: backyard burning, cigarettes, campfires at inappropriate times or of inappropriate um, uh, sizes are are, are definitely uh, definitely very frustrating. And John, as we look longer term here, is there anything that can be done in terms of, of forest management uh, to, to try and, and mitigate some of these extreme forest fire events that we're experiencing? I know there's there's been discussion about, you know, the fact that we spent decades of immediately putting out fires when they crop up, and that's that hasn't allowed nature to, in a sense, take its course. Is there anything to that? Oh, very much so. Uh, it's it's very well researched and cited. Uh, you know it, that that is uh, fire in a lot of the ecosystems, particularly here in, in BC where I am. It's a natural part of the ecosystem. Uh, our, our forests and many of our forests and grasslands uh, they developed with fire as part of their natural process, and uh, these these natural fires or these anthropogenic fires um, would would 
maintain uh, forests and grasslands in a low low fuel condition, and that would only allow you know lower intensity fires to to exist um, in those areas, and it would create like a patchwork or a mosaic of low fuel, high fuel conditions, so that if a fire did start, it didn't have this uh, very continuous um, heavy fuel loading uh, across the landscape where it it would become these catastrophic fires that that we're we're seeing now uh some ecosystems you know that it did because that's how it evolved as part of its reproductive um process of, of completely removing everything and starting afresh um so w- w- what we've done with forest management over the years as you said we you know we started out with smoky the bear and all fire is bad and 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 we went so far that way in the last hundred years that we've created a very high fuel load, volatile condition out there um, that, that is allowing these, these, uh, these large intense fires. And when you put you know, the effects of climate change on that and you add in people building homes out into the wildland because they want to live among the bush, you're, you're creating the, we've created the conditions that we're in right now. And it's going to take a long time to, to turn that back and, and create more resilient um, forest conditions that we used to have, and, and we can do that by uh, by reducing the forest fuels in and around communities, uh, by integrating fire back into forest management, uh, prescribed and cultural burning. Uh, we need to we need to do more of that. Um, but we're, we are we are playing catch up. We, we've done a really good job of putting fires out last hundred years and 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 uh, it's going to be a challenge uh and take a lot of money and time and and resources and, and skill uh you know with regards to prescribed burning a lot of the burning that happened uh the, the people that used to do it that had that skill and artistic flair of every tired and moved on and, and we need to train that back into our current forest management folks um to yeah to to, to catch up some great insight john uh, we thank you for your time tonight really do appreciate it yeah, anytime, said Appreciate it. Have a good weekend. Well, I would venture to guess that there is nobody that doesn't recognize that tune. And you don't have to be a fan of the show Jeopardy to know the Jeopardy theme song. Our next guest is one of the few who had the opportunity to be a contestant on that very program. Kyle Marshall joins us now. He's a branch manager with the Edmonton uh, Library, Edmonton Public Library in Edmonton, Alberta. Kyle, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You know, I was going to say uh, that you were uh, a contestant on the program recently or this week, but I know that's not how it works with Jeopardy. When did when was this program recorded? Yeah, it's funny because, yeah, the episode just aired on Wednesday, but I went down to L.A. to film it on March 24th, so over two months ago. So I've been sitting on the news about how I did on the show and uh, all of the other secrets for a couple months now. <laughs> did you tell anybody? Uh, my partner, yeah, and my, my parents were there in the audience actually watching so and cheering me on, but uh, otherwise I tried to keep it a, a secret for all my friends and family to kind of experience the show as I did when, when the air date came. All right, so, so tell me how this comes about. First of all, have you, uh, like, you must be a big trivia guy. Have you always been into trivia? Do you beat all your friends at it? Do you go to pub nights and show them who's boss? 
<laughs> you know, I've, I have been into trivia since I was a kid. You know, even as a child, I was reading dinosaur books at three years old and uh, atlases when I was 10 years old. You know, normal kid stuff. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, as, as I got older, yeah, I've, I've been into trivia. I haven't been into competitive trivia necessarily, but just, you know, really curious about the world and different uh, cultures and regions of the world and um, many different facts, I guess. I've, I've been kind of gathering that throughout my lifetime. And so um, haven't necessarily been a major Jeopardy fan, but trivia has been a part of my life for sure. So you haven't been a major Jeopardy fan because that was going to be my next question. I would assume that you were a huge fan. I've always liked the show, but uh, I wasn't a cable subscriber for many years and just, you know, life got busy and wasn't necessarily into Jeopardy. So during the pandemic, actually, we had a couple of friends who had set up these uh, kind of mock Jeopardy games where we play alongside the game. And my friend Matt, who has been a really hardcore fan for many years, told me, Kyle, you know, you've just got to try out for the show. And so I took the test and, you know, didn't hear back for, for a while. And then took the second step in which they uh, kind of record you typing in a synchronous Zoom setting so that they know it's actually you. And then I was invited to an interview back in, uh, sorry, an audition back in November. And so that's, they do kind of simulated gameplay. And after that, you're on the cast list and they can just give you a call at any moment. And my call came in February about a month before I went down to tape and uh, it was full of uh, nerves and, and fear and excitement and all that, all that type of fun stuff. And I uh, spent that month uh, kind of cramming as much as I could while raising a toddler and working full time. But, you know, I did my best. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, this is this is the outcome. So so take us back to that Zoom call. I'm curious about that. You kind of you kind of glossed over that. This sounds to me like the hostage holding up today's newspaper so they can they can prove, uh, you know, proof of life. So th- this was a, a Zoom call and they had to see that it was you. Were you typing answers or was it a formal, like a job interview or what was that process? Yeah, so it was, it was only the second stage. And so that one was kind of to confirm that the person who was typing the first round uh, was actually on screen and doing it at, at the time that the questions were popping up. So that one was, you know, less formal, but it was just like an additional check to make sure that your identity was the person who was submitting it. And then the third round was a true audition. So simulated gameplay, they had multiple contestants kind of buzzing in with their pens as, as kind of a signaling device for, uh, to be called upon. And you did like the little anecdote process that you see on the show as well. Uh, and I think they take all that information in and to see how well you did to see if uh, you're kind of fit for the show. And so was that process in Los Angeles, that final process audition? No, it's, it, no, it's actually all virtual. And so I think that's why you're starting oh, that's virtual to see more, as well. more Canadians. Yeah. And that's, it's really opened up the door for Canadians truly. Like before they would have these auditions, I believe, in person at select cities across North America. Maybe there would be one in Canada. Uh, I'm not even sure if that was the case, but now, uh, you know, Matea Roach, a Canadian, just went on a huge run back in the fall. And uh, yeah, I, when I was on my tape day, there were three Canadians. Deandra D'Alessio from Montreal had been a returning champion for a couple of days. And then I believe there's a Torontonian that was on tonight's show, actually. So three of us, uh, three of us in that week alone. Okay. And so then you, pa- how did they tell you that you passed that stage? How were you informed of that? You just get invited. They, they basically, you kind of wait, bide your time until uh, you get a call. And so after that audition stage, you know, I, I just, I, they gave me a call when I was on vacation, actually, in Hawaii, saying, you know, is all your information correct? Have you committed a felony since we last spoke to you? And thankfully, the answer was no. Uh, so yeah, so good I answer. kept on the good list. Answer. Yeah, <laughs> I did my best to stay out of trouble in the meantime, you know, could have been on Jeopardy. So, uh, yeah, and then uh, at that point, I was like, oh, you know, they're just updating their list. Who knows if that means anything? And 
lo and behold, like uh, basically a week later, I got a call. Uh, I was just uh, stepping off the plane a day prior and saying, yeah, we're, we're filming in a month um, and we'd like you to come. And so uh, that, was, that was kind of the fatal day where, where things changed for me. And where is the show filmed and what was that like arriving on set or arriving on? Is this one we, we hear about these Hollywood lots? Was this one of those show lots? Yeah, you're totally right. It was Sony Picture Studios in Culver City, Los Angeles kind of greater area. It's I think it's a separate city, but it is within Los Angeles County, really close to downtown LA between there and Venice Beach. Yeah, and it is it is like a Hollywood lot. You 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 know, check in with security. We did a COVID test the day prior and to make sure we're all clear to to compete. And then uh, you know, hair and makeup was all done on the Wheel of Fortune stage actually. That was our holding room more or less. Um, and, uh, they did all the rules. We did, we actually did a couple of rehearsal rounds, uh, before we actually played as well to kind of get a, a sense of the buzzer and what it was like to be on the Alex Trebek stage there. Were there any other shows shooting at the time? Did you see any celebrities? Did you see any sets? Obviously you saw, uh, the Wheel of Fortune set. No, they, they kept us pretty tight, to be honest. So uh, we were in our, our little group going straight to the Wheel of Fortune stage. But I mean, the host, Mayim Bialik, is, is pretty famous, I'd say. Uh, so that was that was my closest uh, brush with stardom, I'd say, that day. So she's, you know, when I was growing up, uh, in syndication was a show called Blossom that she was on. Uh, I don't know if you remember that one. But uh, yeah, she's she's had a few different shows since then, has written books, um, you know, has, is a, has a, I think, a doctorate in neuroscience. So she's she's done pretty well for herself. So are you getting at this point progressively more nervous or how are you handling this whole uh, this whole thing? I mean, the hair and the makeup and the Hollywood lot and, and on the set of Wheel of Fortune and, and seeing these celebrities. Yeah, you know, it was it was tough to keep it in check, to be honest. Uh, I was doing my best. But, you know, it, the, what almost helped was there was uh, there was a sense of um, we were all going through a similar experience in that uh, all the contestants, there were about 12 of us there that day. Um, we're nervous. Like we we're making jokes as soon as we got there. Oh, everyone had a great sleep last night, right? <laughs> right before we were about to film. So that, that helped a little bit. Um, that being said, I will say when I went to do my rehearsal, um, I bombed it. Like uh, basically I couldn't get the buzzer right. I was late on, I was too early actually. So once you buzz in too early, they'll lock you out. And uh, mm-hmm. so I actually was never called on for that first little bit. And I was like, this is going to be a rough day. <laughs> you know, setting my expectations really low, trying to just, make sure that I didn't make a complete fool of myself, but uh, I was definitely trying to remain positive, yet uh, not hope- not very hopeful that I would have a very good showing on the show. So when you're going through that rehearsal, you already know you're going on the show regardless of the rehearsal. The rehearsal is just to get to you familiar with, with the systems and the buzzer and how it's going to go? Yeah, you've got it, exactly. And and really, the, the, the people who are running the show want you to do as well as you can. So they're, they're pumping you up, they're coaching you a little bit during the rehearsal period only, because, of course, it has to be completely objective after that. They're, they're very careful about gameplay being, um, being extremely fair and equitable. So, um, yeah, at that, that point, we were all pretty much booked. They had their backup people in, in case anyone got really sick at the last moment. Uh, one guy was there, I think, as a backup, but he was guaranteed a show date at a later date. He was a local guy. Um, but no, we were, we were all guaranteed. And at that point it was just basically, they would pick your name out of a hat to see which show you're on. So I was on the Wednesday show. So I sat through two shows, um, that were filmed prior to me and watching that, uh, kind of on that wheel of fortune stage. And then, uh, before the Wednesday show, I, I, they came out and said, Kyle, Lisa and Ilhana, you're up. And that's how I knew, uh, that was my game. Our guest is Kyle Marshall. Kyle is a branch manager with Edmonton Public Library and a recent contestant on the TV show Jeopardy. And this is some of Kyle's work on the show. Uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber for a thousand, please. Here's Andrew. 
Glenn Close was a marvel to behold, singing my song as if we never said goodbye, playing this silver screen legend in Sunset Boulevard. Kyle. Who is Norma Desmond? That's right. General term for the official monetary unit of a nation. Kyle. What is currency? Yes. Eight letter words, a thousand. Some workplaces have this network of linked computers, sort of the company-wide web. Kyle. What is an intranet? That's correct, intranet. So Kyle, you walked us through the audition process. You walked us through the rehearsals. What was it like waiting in the wings, you're seconds away from them calling you out onto stage for the real show? What was going through your mind? What were you feeling in the moment? <laughs> Take some deep breaths. Um Try to, uh, you know, do yourself proud, do the best that you can. And that's really all you can do in the moment. I mean, I, I had prepared in, in the lead up. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, at that point, really, I just, I just needed to try my best to, to perform, to, perform to, uh, to what I could do at the occasion, given all the additional pressures and all the additional um, kind of uh, everything going on around me, basically the lights, the, the cameras, the, the audience, Mayim Bialik, uh, returning champion. So kind of all that was, was going through my head to try to, you know, reduce this and allow myself to try to perform. And that's the difference, isn't it? I, I said off the top that, uh, you know, a lot of us sit around and we play trivia or, you know, we might even watch Jeopardy and say, well, I knew that answer. I could go on that show and I could win this and I could do that. But it's it's much different when you're there and when you're under the hot lights and when the pressure's on and you've got all these other distractions going on around you, I would imagine. Absolutely. And, and you've seen contest- contestants do it before, right? They get up there and they clam up. Maybe they get one wrong and they completely... Uh, go into a shell and are, are so upset with themselves that they can't get back into the rhythm of buzzing in at, at the right time. And so, you know, even if you do know all the answers at home, uh, unfortunately, you're not going to get called for all the answers when you're on the show because you're up against people who are trying to buzz in as quickly as they can as well. So it's uh, it's definitely it's a slightly physical game in addition to in addition to definitely be a, a mental and emotional one for sure. And you're obviously very well read and 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 good at trivia, but is this something that you can train for, practice for, plan for when you have no idea what questions are, are coming or even I, I'm assuming what categories they're going to be in when you get on the actual show. Yeah, you're totally right. And that was, that was the challenge in, you know, given one month to prepare, I, I really had to focus what I could prepare for at that time because I haven't been training for Jeopardy my whole life. I would recommend any listener that really wants to be on the show to to take some time and take out some general knowledge books and start preparing, think about their weak areas or categories that show up on the show a lot and see if they can prepare over a longer period of time. Because I wasn't really preparing until that one month prior. Um, But what I did decide to do in that month was focus on categories that came up quite frequently um, and categories that I didn't really know um, completely. So I I did some American history um, because I, I was a little bit weak in that and they get pretty specific on the show. It is an American show after all. Um, and then the one thing that I actually dove into was American presidents, uh, learning them in order, learning a little bit of a fact about each of them. And uh, believe it or not, a category came up on American presidents on the show that I was on. Um, it was it was mostly luck that that came up. But that being said, I chose that category because I knew it, it comes up quite frequently on the show. And so learning some general knowledge about them was was likely to pay off. But because of that breadth of knowledge beyond that, honestly, I, I just did gameplay because you can't read the encyclopedia from back to front. You know, like I said, I was, I was working full time. I didn't take time off to prepare for the show and really they can throw anything at you. So, you know, we were, we were joking the contestants kind of on the uh, waiting to go on stage, like, 
you know what you know at that point you you can really there's no way to completely compile all the earth's knowledge in, in that little amount of time um and so that's that's the way i focus to prepare for the show um a bit of mental preparations but also just kind of learning the rhythms of the game and a couple odd categories to to improve upon you mentioned game plan. I was going to ask you about that. So you're talking, and, and I think you maybe answered the question, but you're talking about the rhythm of the game and the flow and what to expect along those lines. Yeah, and actually, even more so. So my partner Brady actually set up in in our basement. We had when once our son went to bed uh, uh, a whiteboard, and there's this incredible website with all of the past Jeopardy games. So he would ask me questions, and I would buzz in with my pen, which is different than the signaling device, and so I had to get used to that. But at the very least, I was I was getting used to you know clicking and having really quick um, response right away, but then also knowing that like I would get penalized if I if I got one wrong. So we would tally up my score at the end. I would you know use that to um, kind of uh, impact how I, how my betting strategy would work because that's another huge component of the game, especially when it comes to Final Jeopardy. So uh, and then there's just like different phrasings and and ways that they word certain clues that if you haven't seen the show. Um, it wouldn't come to you nearly as easily. And so you have to familiarize yourself with the way that, that certain categories are run or you're going to be um, having a tough time and definitely at a, at a loss compared to the other contestants. And did you have, beyond brushing up, say, on American presidents, did you have sort of a wheelhouse for trivia before you started on this journey to get on the program? Totally, yeah. I think most people do. They, they kind of visualize what would their, their dream category board look like. Uh, for me, that's uh, definitely geography, um, though there are a lot of people who are great at geography on the show, so um, that's not necessarily that special, but geography, food, culture, um, I would say uh, some pop culture, not all of it, um, music, uh, and uh, I would languages, decent history. I wouldn't say I'm better than most of the Jeopardy folks, but I, I definitely don't shy away if I see a category like that. Um, that's probably, those are probably my, my best categories. A little bit weaker in, I'd say, wordplay, uh, some of the science categories for sure, and, and the Bible, I don't have that much of a historic knowledge or, or recent knowledge of it. So, and those are pretty common categories, so um, I, was, I was kind of fearing seeing many of those come up. Okay, and I think we've kept the audience in suspense. For those who don't know the story, who don't know the outcome, how did this program play out for you, and how did you fare? Yeah, so it was a really slow start to the game. All three contestants were actually uh, either at zero dollars or two of us were in the negative going into the first commercial break. So it was looking pretty bad at first. But then after we kind of got into a better rhythm and um, going into the double jeopardy, I was in the lead. I can't remember my exact score, but I think I was up by a thousand dollars or so. And then um, I got a, uh, a daily double um, early on in that round. And I, I kind of shot up uh, ahead of everyone else. And then, you know, as gameplay kind of went, uh, I was really neck and neck with Ilhana, who is the returning champion. And then truly right before Final Jeopardy, uh, one of the questions was about a president. And I asked, I, I guessed, who is Adams? She asked for clarification, the host. And I said, who is John Adams? Which really leaves, uh, because I got it wrong and she ruled against me, it only leaves one more obvious answer, and that's John Quincy Adams. And so Ilhana swept in for that and she just took a slight lead going into final jeopardy so she had 10,400 i had 10,200 and uh that led us to final jeopardy which is the big question at the end where we wager and uh and there's one question that we all answer and you ended up 
finishing second, correct? Which is a great showing, and uh, I know there are a lot of people, uh, a lot of Canadians that were very happy to see what you did and how well you did. Uh, Kyle, thank you very much. We do appreciate you uh, coming on to uh, to share your story with us. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Our next guest, I've really been looking forward to this conversation. Our next guest has been described as Canada's greatest living explorer. He's an author. He does produce documentaries. In fact, you can go on YouTube. There's a free documentary on YouTube right now that you can view alone in the Arctic. Uh, Adam Schultz joins us now. Uh, he is an explorer. He is an adventurer. As I mentioned, he is an author. And he has gone on some mind-blowing expeditions to and across the far north in our country. Adam, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And I guess I want to start at the start. I'm curious about your childhood and your upbringing and what what sparked your your love of nature and, and your curiosity. Where did that come from? Well, thanks for having me on the show. Um, you know, I think my childhood probably wasn't that different than maybe your own and probably a lot of other Canadians who love the outdoors. I mean, I grew up as a kid who loved to fish, who loved to mess around in boats, and who loved to just go in the woods camping. Uh, I know I was pretty lucky that I grew up in rural Canada, in southern Ontario, but we we lived in an area that was just forest. Uh, we didn't have any immediate neighbors, no, no sidewalks or streetlights, so you could see the stars at night when you slept by your campfire. And we could go out into the woods, my brother and I, with our dog, um, whenever we wanted, right behind our house. So that's kind of how I fell in love with nature and exploring and adventure. It was uh, my first playground, my first classroom, even, if you will. And When I was really young, I didn't really have an ambition to grow up and become an explorer. I don't even think I really knew what that word meant. When I was a kid, wanted to live in the forest like Daniel Boone or something, uh, Davy Crockett, uh, that kind of stuff, have Huckleberry Finn adventures. So when I was younger, I put all of my attention and my my emphasis on learning how to survive in the woods. I did a little bit of hunting, fishing, like survivalist stuff. How do you make fire without matches? Uh, learning how to forage wild mushrooms, you know, which ones are poisonous, steer clear of those, building shelters. I did all of that kind of stuff as a kid. So and when you, was, sorry, when you say a kid, are we talking eight, nine, ten, or early teens, late teens? How old were you when you were starting to do all of these things? Oh, I would say, yeah, like five, age five through 12. And then when I was a teenager, started to become more involved and more intense. But that was like my childhood. Like pretty much, I think the first time I slept in the woods with just my brother and I, we were five. I remember we built like a shelter out of sticks and like we had a good arsenal of Swiss army knives and like little spears we made <laughs> in case like, uh, you know, a monster came or Freddy Krueger or, you know, something like that because <laughs> we were terrified. But my parents were very indulging that they let us like sleep out in the woods uh, at such a young age. And I remember we used to camp out all the time, especially as we got older. And we the fun of it was half time we didn't use tents. We'd just build our own shelters and sleep in them. So that was like, yeah, I would say age 5 through 12, 13 was when I was really consumed with that. And then when I was just getting into high school, like age 14 or so, is when I got more seriously involved into canoeing. And that came through my father. I was very fortunate that my father was a woodworker. So his whole specialty was building anything you could out of wood, um, using hand tools, building everything by hand, no power tools. And he used to build everything, like grandfather clocks and uh, kitchen tables and bookshelves. But to the point of our story here, he would make canoes, and that's how I fell in love with paddling. And in the beginning, when I first started canoeing, I remember 
that was when I first started to do like canoe camping, where you're going into the backcountry, uh, remote areas by canoe. And in the beginning, I just thought of the canoe as purely a means to an end. Um, I didn't think of it as like uh, something you enjoy doing, but just as a way to get deeper into the wilderness. Only as I got a little bit older, like 16, 17, 18, did I think like, oh, now I really want a canoe because it's like, it opens up all these doors. Now I can get to extremely remote places, hundreds of miles from the nearest road, town, even any inhabited place. And that to me was very exciting, this idea of going into pure wilderness, not like a national park with campgrounds and trails and Wi-Fi, but somewhere really remote, off the beaten track, somewhere pristine, that idea became irresistible to me. And by the time I was in my 20s, I was basically pursuing it full time with everything I had. As you're walking through the progression uh, of your of your early life, I'm, I'm fast forwarding to when you're a little bit older and sitting on the deck and telling your grandkids, you know, in my day... We camped outside at the age of five and made our own spears to ward off evil spirits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like to think that that's timeless and that kids will still be doing that like 50 years or 60 years from now. I like to think that kids have done that since the dawn of time, like since caveman times and all through history, that there's something like innate about doing that. But who knows? I mean, probably 50, 60 years from now. Our society is just going to be so digital and so urbanized that it will be an experience that will, as you probably surmise there, sound very um, alien to the vast majority of people. But I, I like to hope that, you know, maybe in Canada at least, because we're so blessed with wild places, uh, that will still be a part of growing up, that people sort of do that as a rite of passage, go camp out in the backwoods kind of thing. This This sounds like a very natural progression as you describe it in terms of uh, the canoe building with your father, the early childhood camping out with your brother, and then, you know, using the canoe to explore wild places and maybe trying to find those off the beaten path places that nobody else is and you can kind of be alone in nature. But at what point, or, or was there a singular point where, where where you thought, I want to be alone in the wilderness and I want to go on adventures that are not overnight or a couple of days, but they're weeks, if not months in length? Because that seems like pretty extreme to a lot of people, I'm sure. You know, I can tell you exactly what the, what moment that was, but no one has asked me that question, at least not in a long time. So it's, uh, it's just taking me back. But I remember exactly. I was 14 years old. It was in the eighth grade, and it was a book. Um, it was a book that inspired me to want to do that. And my eighth grade teacher, uh, Mr. Bianchini, he had our class read a book by Farley Mowat called Lost in the Barrens, and it's mm-hmm. a Canadian classic, right? Yeah. Two boys that get lost in the wilderness of northern Manitoba and have to survive. They end up like building a cabin and living in the wilderness. And as a 14-year-old reading that book, it was like, wow, I want to do this. My friends at that time, they shared my love of the outdoors. And I remember my best friend was this guy, Wes Crow, who I've since done a lot of adventures and expeditions with. But we were both like blown away by reading that book as 14-year-olds. It was like the first time English class was actually fun and exciting. And we're like, yeah, this is awesome. Like we want to go out in the wilderness, like the real wilderness. All through high school, he and I would do adventures. And then when we graduated at the end of grade 12, we actually did set off on a big expedition, which was, I think of as my first really big expedition. That was about four or 500 kilometers north of Lake Superior. We had no money. I remember we had to buy a car just to get there. And uh, we had $300, which I graduated from high school in 2004. And we were able to find a car for $300 that was barely serviceable, but it got us there. It was a 1989 Ford Tempo, and the starter didn't work. So one of us had to actually push the car 
and build up speed while the other one started it manually. Of course you did. Gear. <laughs> yes, and we drove that car all the way up to Pickle Lake. Um, That's a long way. Nor- yeah, it's as far north as you can go in Ontario. It's literally the end of the line. We did a big adventure, and I, I completely was hooked on it, and I've been doing bigger expeditions ever since. Our guest for the hour, Adam Schultz, professional explorer, best-selling author. Uh, and Adam, I think my first, well, I know my first introduction to your writing, to your expeditions, was the book Alone Against the North, where you're navigating and exploring uh, an uncharted river in the Hudson Bay lowlands of northern Ontario. And so this is a river that essentially, as far as anybody knows, nobody else had ever been on or paddled. How did you find it? Well, I took quite a bit of research. So this is going back a little ways now, and the world has changed quite a bit and just lost 15 years. So Alone Against the North, the expeditions in that book took place between 2008 and 2012. That's when I'm doing the actual exploration. So now, 11 years later, it'd be a lot harder to pull that off because satellite technology has improved by leaps and bounds. But as recently as back then, like, you know, barely more than 10 years ago, there were still places in northern Canada that had never been accurately mapped, and Google Earth, other satellite data, was still in its infancy. Um, there wasn't high-resolution satellite imagery available, so you could find things like waterfalls that weren't visible from satellite imagery and weren't on any map. So you could still go out with nothing more than a backpack and a canoe set off into the wilderness and come back and change the map. Uh, which sounds like something from hundreds of years ago, but lo and behold, it was it was still possible to do that in the 21st century. And I'm speaking in the past tense, but you you might still be able to do that even now in 2023. But it would be harder. Most of the low hanging fruit, the really juicy ones, people like me were plucking around 2010, 2011, as the last chapters were being written on that type of exploration. I say I think you probably could still find an expedition where you could go out and map things that aren't on any map and that are hidden on satellite imagery, either through cloud cover or just because um, maybe in the most remote parts of of northern Canada where there's no real demand for it, there might still just be low-resolution satellite imagery available, although you know, almost every month, every year, they're filling that in with better and better images, um, which makes it possible if you look carefully, you squint or you use a magnifying glass to figure out what's down there on the ground. So, uh, until very recently, you could still do that kind of expedition, which is exactly what I did. So if you take us back to that moment in time, again, we're talking some, some 10 years ago, and this, uh, uh, this adventure into the wilds of northern Ontario on this river that at that point had not been charted or documented in any known way. What sort of planning goes into that, and, and how long is it? it, it you know, having read that book, it just seemed grueling. It seemed physically grueling. It seemed mentally grueling. If I recall, you took more than one crack at it before you finally were able to complete it. Yes, yeah. The main river that I explored. Well, I did a bunch of different nameless rivers on different expeditions to the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, but one of them, ironically, is called the Again River, and I went back to it multiple times, um, partly in the interest of making more detailed maps, taking more detailed photos, and looking at the river in different conditions, high water versus low water in different years. But those those expeditions were quite grueling, in part because I did them mostly alone. I had a partner on the first of them, and then that partner ended up quitting about halfway into a journey when he had a certain epiphany that this whole thing was a lot more fun to look forward to and look back upon rather than actually endure in the moment. The black flies and mosquitoes up in that neck of the woods are almost insane. So he said, this is just too much. It was physically grueling, especially because the part of the country it's in, the Hudson Bay Lowlands, as you said, 
And it's a vast wetland that has the distinction of having the world's highest concentration of mosquitoes and black flies. You really have to see it to believe it. On my YouTube channel, I have a video of just how bad the mosquitoes can get there on a day with no wind. Like literally billions of mosquitoes filling up the air to the point where you can barely see through them. They're so thick. Where with every breath you take, you're inhaling clouds of mosquitoes. Um, they can be just that bad. Do you, do, you wear, do you wear nets for that? Do you take spray with you or how do you deal with it? I mostly wear mesh bug nets, and it's relatively cold even in summer at those latitudes, especially around the coast of James Bay and Hudson Bay. So I wear long sleeve pants, uh, long sleeve shirts, and I sort of tuck everything in, wear my mesh bug net. But the reality is when you're dealing with millions of bugs, um, even if only like 1% or 2% finds a way to bite through the mesh, that translates into a huge number of bites. And if you're out there for a couple of days, that might not be such a big day of deal. But if you're out there for months, uh, you get covered in almost every conceivable place in bug bites. Uh, there's not a lot you can do. And, and the thing about mesh bug nets, I find, if you're spending a really long day, uh, eventually it just kind of gets annoying because you can't really see. It restricts your vision. So sometimes I pull it up just so I can see a little bit better. Now, the saving grace is it's often windy. And if you're traveling along, say, the coast of Hudson Bay, if there's a wind or a breeze of any kind, that will usually be enough to take care of the clouds of bugs. So you you do get relief. It's usually on the portages where it becomes a problem. Uh, there's few things worse than spending days hacking through a place with no trails, no paths, um, hauling a 65-pound canoe and making multiple trips with your other loads, all while being eaten alive by um, millions of black flies and mosquitoes and sinking down up to your waist in muskeg, which is essentially like Canadian quicksand. But at the same time, there's something about it. You're making this sound really appealing to people. You're making this sound like everybody wants to do this now. (laughs) Well, I know I say it, it sounds kind of bad, but at the same time, there's something about the adventure of it that you learn to see the bright side. And and when I think about doing anything else, like my taxes or answering emails, I'm like, oh, that's not actually that bad. I'd rather be back out on a portage in the middle of trackless swamps, um, putting up with all of those hazards rather than sitting here at a computer screen sort of thing. And Adam, I'm curious, what you find harder when you're on these expeditions, and some of these are months in length in the most remote areas on earth, what do you find harder to deal with? Is it it the physical toll, the mental toll? Well, I have to say at the start that I consider myself very lucky um, that I get to do what I love, and I wouldn't really trade this for anything. So in some ways, I don't want to, you know, it's mentally hard or it's physically hard because I, I feel like a lot of other jobs, uh, more conventional jobs, if you were, will, are actually harder mentally and physically. Whenever I have to write a book or do anything like that, I'm like, wow, this is physically way harder than doing a 4,000 kilometer journey alone across the Arctic. <laughs> Sitting in this chair is not good for my posture. If I was in my canoe, you know, I have my perfect little you know, I can do 12, 13 hours a day without my back getting sore in my canoe. But sitting at this desk, I get sore within like two hours. Um, and, and staring at a screen is it's probably not good for your eyes. I always worry, I'm going to damage my eyes typing up this book. So I consider myself pretty lucky that I get to spend a lot of time in the great outdoors uh, doing what I love. Now, that said, you know, all kidding aside, if you're going for like, say, 4,000 kilometers alone across the Arctic, like I did a few years ago, um, physically, it, it can be really difficult. You're dealing with cold water, hypothermia. Uh, all my toenails tend to turn black and fall off from being stubbed against underwater rocks when I'm wading through rivers. But the hardest part, I would say, is the hunger. Um, hunger just becomes your constant companion. As those journeys go on, you just lose more and more weight. doesn't really matter how many calories you consume. It'll never be enough um, to make up for what you're burning. So you have to constantly deal with the fact that you're hungry. And when you spend a lot of time alone, 
in the wild, uh, you're almost haunted by visions of pizza and hamburgers and whatever it is, milkshakes you're craving all day long as you're paddling your canoe, just stroke after stroke. Well, I, I'm curious. Sorry. On I, your mind of food. I can, I can only imagine. Uh, I'm curious, though, uh, being in these, you know, remote and pristine locations, do you fish along the way to supplement your diet or is there, is there time for that? Sometimes I do. It just really depends on the nature of, of what I'm doing. You know, some of my better known expeditions have been very long journeys, and those journeys have really been uh, are almost like a marathon race, where every hour, every minute of the day counts because you're trying to race against the oncoming winter. I mean, I always like to joke, those are the three most important words in Canada, winter is coming. And those were the three words that were constantly on my mind when I was doing 4,000 kilometers alone across the Arctic. I set off in May. And I knew I've got to get this journey done by the end of summer, because if I don't, I'm going to be buried in three feet of snow and all these rivers and lakes are going to freeze solid and it'll be game over. And everyone I talked to, all the old timers, the bush pilots, the prospectors, they'd all said the same thing when I told them I was going to canoe 4,000 kilometers alone across the Arctic. They all said, you're insane, but if you are going to do this, it's critical that you finish by the middle of August, because that's basically your window of decent weather. After August 15th, the weather is going to deteriorate. You're going to have storm season, you know, gale force winds. We're talking 100 mile per hour winds, uh, make canoeing impossible, even make hiking impossible, lightning storms, and just big, powerful storms sweeping off of Hudson's Bay, which is where I was headed. Uh, And I knew I've got to push myself hard every day. I can't take any days off, no rest days, seven days a week. I need to be pushing myself to try to get across the Arctic before the weather turns any worse and even doing it that way i still ended up pushing well into september um to finish so when you're doing that it's like fishing oh you know i can see these massive lake trout on great bear lake or i can see these arctic grailing in these rapids or i can see a brook trout or arctic char in some places and my mouth is practically watering but it's surprisingly i mean even if you think i mean a lot of people are listening will probably think well why not just stop and catch that fish It'll take five minutes. But the reality is it takes a lot longer than five minutes, even in a place where the fish bite on almost every cast, uh, because you don't consider, like, when you're in the canoe by yourself, I use the expression, you can't take your hands off the wheel. Um, There's no one else in that canoe. It's not like being in a motorboat with an anchor or something like that. If you set your paddle down, you're immediately at the mercy of the current or at the wind. So the current is either going to carry you back down river because you might have to actually be traveling up river against the current, or it might take you into some rapids or you might uh, swamp because there's waves. So as soon as you set your paddle down to grab your fishing rod, which you've got set up because you can't just leave it set up because you're doing a lot of bushwhacking through Arctic willow and dwarf birch. Um, now you're, you're at the mercy of the current. It's going to take you the wrong way. So then you say, well, now I got to paddle ashore and land on shore then I'll set up my rod and fish. But this is not like, you know, cottage country or Algonquin Park. You can't take it for granted that you can simply land on shore wherever you happen to be. There might not actually be anywhere to land. The shore might be nothing but cliffs, um, you know, sheer rock, boulders. It might be mudflats, on the other hand, like on the Mackenzie River, where it's nothing but mudflats. You're going to sink in knee deep when you try to land on the coast there. Uh, So it might actually be hard to get to a place where you can actually stand and get out of your boat and take a cast. And then when you catch a fish, what are you going to do with it? You're alone in the wilderness. There are bears everywhere, polar bears, grizzly bears, and they have such an amazing sense of smell that every bear for miles around, you just created an irresistible magnet. They're going to be drawn to your location. If you're in a group of people, that might not be such a big deal. Uh, but when you're by yourself, I mean, this is the kind of thing that's going to be weighing on the back of your mind. And of course, you got to catch the fish. You got to clean it, make a fire, 
cook it, do all these things. If you take even an hour out of your day to do that, that's an hour that you're now short. And if I'm traveling around five kilometers an hour, I'm now five kilometers behind. So I actually don't stop for lunch. I mean, lunch is a luxury that I can't afford on one of those journeys. So my lunch is literally a power bar or an energy bar, something that's designed to be like a meal replacement with a lot of calories, like sugar energy to give me my boost so I can keep going because I might be paddling 12 hours a day or 13 hours a day if uh, conditions are good. Um, So I'm just basically eating bars throughout the day, a little bit of dried uh, fruit, some nuts like uh, cashews or almonds, you know, high energy foods to give me the calories to keep going. Now, some of the other expeditions I do are different, and I do a heck of a lot of fishing where I'm eating fish almost every day. I don't just do like these kind of expeditions. Uh, Some of my projects in recent years have involved uh, more archaeological expeditions where I'm looking for lost explorers. If I'm looking for a lost explorer, it's a whole different ballgame. Now it's all about traveling slow and making sure I don't miss anything, right? There could be a rusty old pocket knife on the riverbed there from 100 years ago, which is the exact artifact I'm searching for. So in those circumstances, it's all about slowing the pace down. Now there's lots of times to fish. Uh, And certainly if you're traveling with another person, and I I don't just do expeditions solo, I do expeditions with other people as well. And if you have another person in your canoe, that's a game changer as well. Then it's very easy to fish on the go. One person can paddle, the other person can, can throw a line out and troll, or just take some casts whenever you come across a spot that looks promising. So you have kind of a division of labor where it's like, I'm going to set up the tent, you uh, fillet the fish, then I'll go get some firewood, um, you cook it, I'll go gather some water for us. Like that kind of thing makes it yeah. a lot easier. But uh-huh. even on my most recent journey, I canoed from Lake Erie to the Arctic. On the end of that one, I was so hungry um, that I was basically just down to foraging. So I was living off of wild berries, fish, brook trout, uh, mushrooms, roots, whatever I could come across, berries. So yeah, I was I was fishing by necessity on that one. We've talked, Adam, about a lot of things, including in the last segment about all those fish that you pass over when you're on the monster expeditions. I know you said you do some shorter ones uh, where you do take the time to, to fish and eat the fish that you catch. Uh, but I also know that you've had encounters with wildlife and I guess we could assume that even if we hadn't written, read your books with, with various species. Uh, I know you've had some run-ins with muskox and, and I believe uh, with at least one polar bear. Yes, yeah, those have both happened to me on uh, more than one occasion. I've had a few run-ins with polar bears that have given me almost a heart attack. And surprisingly enough, I mean, I think most people, when they hear you spend a lot of time alone in the wilderness, months out of the year, every year, they think you must be worried about bears or wolves or something, mountain lions. And when I tell them that, you know, one of the animals that has given me the most trouble in the night uh, when I'm alone are, are muxhawks. And uh, they barely believe it. And But if you look one up, I mean, you can see them on my website or on my Instagram. They look prehistoric or else like something out of Star Wars. There's these huge, shaggy, bison-like animals that live in the Arctic with huge horns. For the most part, they're gentle giants. I mean, like the bra- browse on willow, um, little Arctic willow that grows close to the ground. But every once in a while, you come across a bull. And the bulls can be very aggressive. Um, They will actually gallop at full speed and and bang heads, ram heads together. Their heads look like almost like armor. Uh, Their forehead is like solid bone in order to be able to do that. And more than once on the journey alone across the Arctic, as well as some of the other expeditions, after seeing like a hundred of them during the day, I was like, oh, no big deal, right? It's like seeing a Canada goose or something. (laughs) And then in the night, you hear something outside your tent. Yeah, you hear something outside your tent, like pawing the ground and snorting like an angry bull, and you realize one of these things has wandered into your campsite, 
and it's now going to come galloping through. So those can be uh, nerve-wracking situations, as can dealing with uh, the occasional aggressive bear, whether it's a grizzly bear or, or a polar bear or even a black bear. Uh, but I've been pretty fortunate that I've avoided um, anything too serious with animals on my journeys. Uh, one last one, and I'm curious... With all of these expeditions, are there moments or has there ever been a moment during one of these expeditions, we're talking some of these ones that are months long, where you're halfway through and you say, I think I've had enough. Why am I even doing this? No, not so much, especially not at the halfway mark. I know that that's like a natural question. You would think that, like looking at it from the outside, like, you know, you're halfway through this thing, you're starving, you're putting up with Uh, lightning storms and you've almost drowned at least three or four times by this point, you must want to quit. But no, but usually by the halfway point, you think there is absolutely no way in hell I'm quitting because I've already gone through so much to get this far. I've got like 2000 kilometers behind me at this point. There's no way I'm going to throw in the towel because then all of the months of effort to get this far would be wasted. The hardest part is actually the beginning. It's the start. It's like the night before I leave, where I don't sleep very much and I have doubts creeping into my mind saying, you know, what have I got myself into? What was I thinking? This seemed like a good idea a year ago when I was looking at a map, but now I've actually got this vast distance ahead of me to cross alone or, or do. And that is when I have like my, my most difficult moments mentally, the, t- the toughest is at the very start. And when you set off on like, say a 4,000 kilometer journey, you think there's no way I'm going to get to the end. I mean, what if the ice is against me? And what if my boat is crushed by ice? What if a polar bear eats me? What if a wolverine steals all my food in the night? Uh, what if I get struck by lightning? You know, my metal tent poles are going to be the highest thing on the Arctic tundra. Um, and you, you worry so much that you end up psyching yourself out. You take yourself out of the game before it even begins. And what I do in those situations is I tell myself to forget about it. You know, just forget about the whole 4,000 kilometer journey. This isn't a journey from Lake Erie to the Arctic or alone across the Arctic. This is simply a one day journey. That's all that matters. Uh, doesn't matter next week or the week after that or the month. All that matters is today. And if I can get through today, the first 50K, that's it. You know, that's kind of like winning the Stanley Cup. Um, I can celebrate with a nice cup of tea at my campsite. I'll find a gorgeous place to sleep. I'll lay out my uh, sleeping bag. Maybe I'll have some level ground, some soft moss to sleep on. I'll cook up a nice freeze-dried meal with some lasagna, and it'll be like a five-star hotel by the time I get in my tent. And so I just kind of take it one step at a time. You know, I just say, that's all that matters, getting across this lake or getting through these rapids or getting around this mountain and breaking it up mentally into like not one journey, but a hundred journeys or every day that I'm out there it allows me to sort of compartmentalize everything and it becomes less daunting. It becomes more manageable. So that's kind of how I would approach it. And that's why I would say the first part of a journey is definitely the hardest because everything's ahead of you. And if you look at the big picture, you can sort of um, get overwhelmed by it, but by breaking it down into more manageable bits, then I kind of get, get going. And once I, once I'm in the zone, you know, once I've broken myself in, I usually say it takes two weeks to break yourself into the routine, to get used to everything. But once you get over that two-week hurdle, then it's like everything becomes a lot easier and you're just determined to keep going. Nothing can stop me now kind of mindset. Well, it's an interesting life you live and you do a masterful job of chronicling it. And uh, if people want to check out your website, what is it? Uh, It's just my name, so adamschultz.com. All right. Thanks, Adam. We really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show.
Right now, as promised, we're going to talk about meditation. We're joined by Marvin Belzer, who's an associate professor of psychiatry at UCLA and associate director of the UCLA Mindful Awareness Research Center. Uh, Professor, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, I guess I want to start by asking, when we talk about mindfulness, when we talk about meditation, I think... I'm sure there are people that have different ideas of what that means. Is there, is there a common definition, for example, when we say, I want to learn to meditate? Uh, yeah, good question. There are dozens of types of meditation. And so there's, there's not a single you know, type of activity that, that is meditation. But they, the differing types of meditation have things in common. For instance, most forms of meditation would begin by directing attention to something actually happening in our experience. And so the sensations of the breath, you know, um, the mantra, something like that. And the reason meditation traditions do this is that mental activity actually works to cultivate more calmness, clarity, stability, and so forth. And so how does one get started in that? Because, you know, I'm sure they're like anything. Some people could have... Uh, objections that come from all over the map. I don't have time. I don't know how to do it. Uh, so how does someone get started if they're interested in something like this? Yeah, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be too complicated. Um, if I were teaching someone and if I had five minutes, I would try to emphasize two things. First, what I just said, that we actually can focus our attention on something actually happening. And, um, such as the breath. And, and so this is something that is doable. We don't have to clear our minds. We don't have to kind of make something happen. It can be odd to do because it's such a simple activity, but, um, and, and it's kind of boring, but it can be done. And then secondly, even though it can be done, our attention will drift, you know, uh, our intelligence will kick in. We'll start thinking about things we're supposed to be doing that we need to do and so forth. And in mindfulness meditation, which is what I'm most familiar with, we include whatever happens in those moments. You know, just that recognition. I'm thinking, I'm scared, I'm feeling sad. Whatever it is, we recognize it. We try to feel it in our bodies. And then we bring our attention back to that more neutral home base or anchor for our attention. Because is the purpose, though, to try to shut out the outside world, to try to, for that brief moment in time, if it's five minutes or three minutes or ten yeah, minutes, to, yeah. to not let our mind race and think about all those things that worry us on a regular basis? Um, not quite. Um, if we could turn off the off button, we would we would do it, you know, uh, just by deciding to do so. And so we don't have to clear our minds. We don't have to like separate ourselves from, from our environment. What we can do in the midst of whatever is happening is use this ability to decide where to place attention. And so typically if I'm leading a meditation, I will invite people to, to notice the sounds they can hear and then notice sensations in the bodies and then the sensations connected with the breath, you know, and that is doable. And um, and people can find that it actually makes a difference, but it is a personal activity. You know, it's a, so people have to decide they want to try. And when you say it makes a difference uh, in, for people, how does it make a difference? What do they what do they feel, or, or how does it help them in their day to day lives? 
Yeah, this is something that human beings have known for, for millennia, you know, in different traditions and so forth. And it actually is a way to cultivate more calmness, stability, clarity of mind. Um, it, and it can be hard to believe that simply sitting for five minutes and feeling the sensations of the normal breath can have an effect like that. Um, but that would be um, kind of a first step. And then secondly, you know, bringing, you know, giving ourselves some time where we can actually be real, where we have permission just to notice what's happening, like when we're anxious, tuning into the actual sensations in our bodies, um, actually helps us manage those emotions better. And so we can have more freedom even in the midst of difficult states. And one of the more kind of vivid applications of mindfulness in clinical settings is using mindfulness to manage physical pain. And so if my right shoulder is in pain, then I focus my attention somewhere else, such as the breath, somewhere not painful. Pain being what it is will tend to intrude. It will tend to come to mind. And in those moments, we do something sort of counterintuitive. We feel into the actual sensations, but maybe just for a few seconds, and then redirect the attention back to the more neutral uh, sensations of the of the breath or hands and so forth. Uh, so this is... And, and the science is showing that it, it's not magic. It doesn't make the pain go away, but the science is showing that it can help people manage the pain better. Meaning, so in a situation, you know, it's not. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, and so it's not dominating their their lives as much, you know, and so that they it is it's, it can still be there, but they're not so uh, dominated by the the reality of the pain. So are you, are you saying then that in a situation like that, you while you're meditating, it, you can actually focus on the pain rather than trying to shift your focus away from the pain? Yeah, yeah, we do both. We do both. So when the pain calls my attention, which it will, and, and people living with chronic pain know all too well that the pain will keep calling for the attention even when it doesn't need to. So we actually yield to that call, so to speak. We tune into the actual sensations. If, I, if it's my right shoulder in pain, I actually feel those sensations without trying to push them away or change them, even though I want them to be gone. We actually just notice what it's like there, but there's no obligation to stay there. And so there's always that permission to shift the attention back somewhere else, uh, such as the sensations in the breath, and the pain will still be sort of on our mind, but it can be really interesting to see that we have that choice where to place attention and that it actually can help to decide to place the attention with the breath back to the pain when it insists back to the breath and so forth. And meditation, mindfulness certainly seems to be growing in popularity. What are the longer term, how popular has it become or do we have statistics on, on, on how many more people, whether it's in North America or worldwide, are practicing? Yeah. yeah, it definitely is, I would say, becoming mainstream relatively quickly. But one study showed that maybe only about 8 or 10% of people actually engage in a meditation practice. So it's, it is becoming more mainstream. I think that um, the way that the science is emerging to show that there can be benefits for mental and physical health is opening people's minds, you know, that it can be practiced in a way that is separate from from any sort of traditional religious um, structure. 
uh, although of course it is and can be practiced in those structures as well, you know, people are learning that this is something that uh, is available and can be done. How um, how long does it take, or I don't know if there's a, a standard answer for something like this, but if somebody starts on a meditation journey, so to speak, how long does it take before they start to feel the benefits? And what are the, what are the health and the physical benefits, aside from as your example of, of a, an injury where there's a specific area of the body that, that is in pain and needs healing, but what are some of the, the general benefits that someone might see from this? Yeah, so the first part, you know, it's it's very personal activity, and um, I would say that at this point there isn't a known sort of trajectory of, of um, you know, how long it takes to, to notice um, the impact of, of this meditative activity, but uh, for some people, and I find this with undergrad students, they're they're ready. They they've heard about it. They they're eager for that opportunity to try it, and then they they realize that it it makes a difference. In terms of the health benefits, there's just a plethora of uh, of studies that have been done overall, but only over the last 15 years or so. So the science is young; it's emerging, but. Um, at every turn, there are uh, you know there's there's there are interesting studies that are 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 good around the uh, benefits for mental and physical health, and this is you know with with kind of dealing with uh, insomnia, with anxiety, um, with blood pressure, and and so forth. And, and by the way, just around the pain example, it's. Um, not so much the acute injuries as when people are living with chronic pain, you know, where they've done what they right. can and it still persists and, and then is kind of, you know, just that sort of natural, um, you know, anger and frustration with it. And um, this is where clearly mindfulness can help manage that so that one way to put it is the pain may persist, but they're not suffering as much. And I hate to, to frame it in terms of time commitment when we're talking about mindfulness and, and healing, but yeah. is it, are, are, we, are we meditating for five minutes, for 15 minutes? Are oh, we yeah. doing it once yeah. a day, once a week, five times a day? Yeah. I, um, I, I am not a proponent of, of setting up a time standard. I think a few minutes a day uh, can have benefits if one does it regularly. And then, you know, for most people who do it regularly for a while, just for a few minutes a day, it will tend to grow. But um, this is where, you know, having an app or something where you, you know, you feel some degree of confidence and just taking some time, five minutes a day to begin. There's not science around how much one needs to, to do uh, it to have a, the benefits. And and then there will be people for whom, you know, it really is um the right time to, to dive in. And so uh, it is a skill that, that we develop. And uh, so like any skill, the more we practice, the more uh, proficient we become. Um, but it, I, I'm, I'm wary of any model that says you need to do it for X amount of time because I don't, I just don't think that's true. And, and people differ. So anyone interested in giving it a try can, you know, there are ways to, to, to see if they're interested. Well, it's interesting and, and it's fascinating, and we know it is growing in popularity, and that's why we wanted to uh, to have you on. We do appreciate your insight yeah. uh, on this topic. Uh, thanks very much, and have a great weekend. Yeah, thank you.